All right, I'd invite you to, uh, to pull out your sermon notes this morning, kind of follow along, some things to fill in if you're a fill-in kind of person. Um, how many of you are following the baseball playoffs? Let me just uh, see it. Yeah, some hands going on. Um, I am uh, going to offend two groups of people right off the bat here, just to get that off the bat, uh, out of the way. Um, the baseball season is way too long. Uh, here, here is where I... Now, now, mind you, this is coming from a guy who thinks a baseball game usually is too long. But, um, but, uh, but here's where I tune into baseball is right around the playoffs. I love it. I, I really do. Baseball is a great sport once the playoffs hit because you can see the end. You know what I mean? You can see the end of the, of the light of the tunnel. Um, now, here's, uh, here's the second. People are fiercely writing what they're going to email me later on. Uh, I'm not done yet. Hang on. Um, here's the second group I'm going to offend. Ready? Um, how many of you are following along with politics? Okay. <laughs> like five people. Uh, here's an issue I have with our country. Um, I look at a packed baseball stadium. And people who are like, I've got a buddy who, if I, at a moment's notice, I can call him and, uh, and ask him, like, four tiers deep, what's happening in the pitching rotation of the Giants organization. He will know these things. Um, and, and, uh, and yet when it comes to politics, uh, here's, here's my, here's my honest vibe about politics. The season is too long. I can't keep up with it. I can't keep up with it all year. However, here's my encouragement to you, church body. My encouragement to you is this. Two weeks from now, we're going to have the opportunity to, uh, to vote. Do your homework. Right now, start doing your homework. I was doing, uh, I was doing, uh, election homework this week. Um, and just reading through things and looking through things. I, I'm like the playoffs in baseball with, with, the, uh, with politics. I can't keep up with it all year long, um, but I really hone in when it's time for my voice to be heard. So I will just challenge you to um, God gave us a brain, God gave us a will, and God has placed us in a free nation. Um, and so uh, let, let it be convicting if it needs to that you might know the fourth rung uh, pitching situation going on in the Giants organization, uh, but maybe not so much in, in the realm of politics. But I would just challenge you to, um, to be doing your homework and don't let it sneak up on you. Um, with that said, go Giants. Uh, this morning, uh, <laughs> we'll move on to more substantial things now. Uh, this morning, um, we're going to really do part two of Ephesians 1, 7 to 12. I called it last week, Love Without a Doubt. And, um, and I just thought about this whole idea. We, we, really, uh, we really pushed, I really pushed for the idea of saying, moving beyond belief to conviction. There are those who believe certain things about a certain candidate. There are those who are convicted about a certain things, convinced about a certain measure, about a certain candidate. You can tell the difference, can't you? I mean, it's the person who's going around door to door, uh, drumming up uh, support for their position. They're passionate about it. They're out talking about it. They're moving on it. They're well-versed in what's happening with it. Others who kind of believe in a candidate, they don't really know that much about it. They give kind of lip service to it. And that's how it is in things of God sometimes. And it's as old as, as, as mankind, I suppose, that people have been giving lip service to it without being convinced. We have two, uh, two st- sayings that we kind of use in popular culture. Uh, beyond the shadow of a doubt. That's one level of not doubting, right? I-, I know this beyond the shadow of a doubt. There's no shadow of doubt with me at all. There's another one that we hear in courtrooms often, and that is what? Beyond a reasonable doubt, right? 
Now, God's called us to a life of faith, and so God has called us to a place where we won't know things. We talked last week about the fact that we have a God that we don't fully understand. Amen? Amen. And isn't that a good thing? Otherwise, wouldn't you be convinced it was an invention of mankind? If I could understand every last nuance of God. I'm thrilled that there's wonder. I'm thrilled that there are things. We talked last week about why God inspired hard passages of Scripture. I loved uh, meeting with a couple on Friday night. And we went from talking about what we were there to meet about to just diving in, kind of wading into the deep waters of the scriptures and some things Jesus had said. And this guy goes, man, I was reading this this week and I've got some questions. And what do you think he meant by that? And here we were sitting around eating my wife's amazing chocolate chip cookies, just diving into the deep waters of God and going, God, what do you have for us here? Man, you've inspired things that, that inspire humility from us, that inspire a level of God... Apart from you, we won't understand where, where we're going and what we're talking about. So help us. We're still there. Ephesians 1 is one of those passages, right? Um, I told you at the start, this is one big long run-on sentence. And so if it feels like you're, there's a cyclical nature to this and you're not know where the breaks go, it's because we've taken and put in some sentence breaks in it for English uh, purposes. But as it was originally written, it was one big long idea that Paul is, is pouring out here. Let me just give you a quick recap if you weren't here last week. Here's the big idea for last week and this week. The plan of God is in the person of Jesus Christ. The plan of God is in the person of Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at, at what Jesus did. This week, we're going to look at, at why he did it. The person of Jesus Christ. We looked at why he did it. Why did uh, Jesus do the things that he did? Um, we looked a little bit at the fact that sin is not external, meaning parents, environmental, society, or genetic, but it's internal. That we are born in sin. That we're incapable of escaping the bondage of sin. Don't blame it on your upbringing. Because your upbringing may have added to some things, may have, may have uh, complicated some things. But if it was upbringing, then, then certainly there would be some pockets that have it right. There are no pockets that have it right. Uh, secondly, we talked about uh, instead, of the, instead of shifting blame, ignoring, or minimizing our sin and the guilt uh, of it, which rests squarely on us, God deals with our sin. And that's a beautiful thing. That's what the gospel's all about. That's why it's great news. We don't have to keep up a charade. We don't have to live by the law's perfect standard. The law was there simply to show us the need for a Savior. That's largely what Hebrews and parts of Romans are all about. Thirdly, in the person, work, death, resurrection, we have... Redemption, which is the idea that we're liberated from the chains of sin. We have deliverance. We talked about the idea that we were born in the dominion of sin. And in Christ, we're freed from that. We're actually removed from dominion of sin to a kingdom of light. And finally, we have forgiveness. Think about this. Every sin of every believer ever committed. I mean, those are sweeping terms. Remember we talked about sins of commission and sins of omission? Not just sins that you do. Things that you ought to have done today that you didn't do. Every one of those is paid for. It's forgiven. We're placed in right standing despite the mounding heap of rocks that we would have to just keep piling on for every sin that we did. Finally, these truths are objectively, verifiably reliable and revealed to us. I say reliable because of this. Um, 
we're going to get into some places in Scripture where God wants us to know these things. He wants us to understand the Bible with the intent that it was written. Not that it was written in some kind of a, um, a, a nebulous way that we get to inject our kind of cultural truth and where we're at in society today, but that there is objective, absolute truth to discover. As you go through any kind of apologetic study where you're saying, are these things true? Is, the, is this really the word of God or not? That's a huge issue to settle, isn't it? Otherwise, church becomes a bit of a game. The authority I'm going to appeal to every single week and whoever comes up here is going to appeal to is the authority of Scripture. So if we don't have this nailed down, we're, we're, we're in trouble with that. We're going to be like children moving from here and there, thinking that sounds kind of true and that sounds kind of true. But God's given us truth to search out. Today is simply this. Why, why did he do it? Why did Jesus die on the cross? We're going to look at the plan of God. Uh, Open up to, uh, to Ephesians chapter 1 if you're not there already. <clears throat> Mind you, we're, we're in a book where Paul is, is writing this to the saints. So this series is going to be a little bit unique in that um, while we always anticipate that there are people in our midst on any Sunday morning as we're here to gather as God's people to worship Him that don't know Him, that don't subscribe to Christian faith, that don't believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God, the series that we're in is talking directly to the saints. And so the messages over the next uh, few months, really, are going to be targeted that way. They're going to be speaking to that because that's who Paul wrote to. I'm going to start in verse 7, chapter 1. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespass, trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Let's pray. Father, these are huge words that we just read. Really, uh, God, any message from you is huge. And so, Lord, this morning, we're so grateful to be here. I'm so grateful for the faces looking back at me this morning. And, Lord, we come with humility and with understanding. And for many of us, perhaps most of us even, God, a deep-seated faith that you've created us for a reason. You've created us with purpose in mind. That you have a plan and that you are speaking today. Holy Spirit, we invite your presence. I ask that my preparation, God, would be used uh, in a way that only you can orchestrate. I ask, Lord, that hindrances, distractions would be kept away, Lord, and we could see clearly what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus wanted to make absolutely certain that people understood the things he talked about uh, were objective, absolute truth. Uh, as he comes home to Nazareth, Jesus shows up on the scene, and as he comes home to Nazareth, um, he goes to the synagogue. And in, in one of the first messages, really, Jesus ever preached, um, he is sitting there, and, uh, and the, the attendants bring him the scroll. Do you remember this? He's sitting in the synagogue, and, and he's going to read from the scroll. And it says this, He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. I mean, this is a really powerful thought, Jesus finding the place 
that it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Then it says this, And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. You think? And he began to say to them, Lest it be unclear, he began to say to him these words, ready? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He is making it crystal clear. I am this promised Messiah. That's the start of his ministry. Let's move to the end of his ministry. The road to Emmaus. Remember this story? This is post-resurrection. A couple of the guys are walking a seven-mile journey out of Jerusalem. It says this in Luke 24. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They weren't beyond the shadow of a doubt. They were starting to doubt. They were wondering what was happening. Jesus had been killed. There was rumor of him rising again from some ladies, but you can tell from their lyrics, uh, from their words, they were confused. Yes, and besides all that, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Goes on, and Jesus shows up, and he says these things to them. It says that their eyes were hidden from understanding who Jesus was, although he was right next to them. He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus has a pretty firm grip on the plan of the Father, does he not? He understands this big picture of redemption that God is is orchestrating. And then catch this. This is such a profound statement Jesus makes. Verse 24 of Luke, of Luke 24, Luke records these words. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The plan of God is in the person of Jesus Christ. It all centers on Jesus Christ. And we said last week, if you had a bullseye that's Jesus Christ, if you went to the very center of the target, the very center of the bullseye, that would be the cross at Calvary, would it not? That is the blazing center of the the plan of God. And that's why we talk about it every week here at this church. That's why in a few moments as we celebrate communion, we're going to remember and proclaim the Lord's death and celebrate the Lord's resurrection. Jesus didn't just preach about it. Uh, Paul preached about it. I know I have you in Ephesians, but if you want to turn over to Acts 13, you can. Paul is preaching in Acts 13. And he preaches this, uh, this, this sermon to, to some different people. And basically, uh, 16 through 22, verses 16 through 22, um, he's, he's standing up and he's, he's, he's really recounting almost all the scriptures. He's just taken it from the beginning. Up until the point where he says, our own... Our own Pharisees, our own people, we killed Jesus. We killed this one that God has ordained as part of the plan to redeem us. 
Usually people didn't like that part of Paul's message. They started to get a little nervous at that point. Uh, angry is really the word. Look at verse 23 of, of verse 13. If you're not there, just listen. Verse 23 says this. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. And Paul basically goes on in this passage to, to say some things to people. Look down to verse 38 where he says this, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Jesus, starting with, the, with Moses and all the prophets, points out how it all had to do with him. The people were blind to that. Paul comes along and he says, uh, you know, men of whatever city he was in, let me tell you what's happening. And he began to explain the plan of God. And it centers on Jesus because that's where forgiveness of sin is found. My desire is that everyone in this room would be so convinced of these things that it wasn't lip service belief that's kind of uh, exchangeable for a better idea or a better feeling or, or something else. But that we'd be so deep-seated in this that it would become conviction. It'd be something we'd be willing to stand on no matter what. Of course, I can't make that happen. That really is a gift from God. We see it in our passage today. So why did uh, Jesus do it? Why did Jesus um, bless us with every spiritual blessing? Why did He choose us in Christ before the foundation of the world? Why did He make us holy and blameless? Why did He predestined us to adoption as His children? Why did He redeem us through His blood? And why has He lavishly given us forgiveness, wisdom, insight, according to the infinite riches of His grace? Why has He included us in the will, so to speak, by giving us this rich inheritance? Do you see these rich blessings? Those are all from Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 is where all those things are found. I'm going to give you four uh, rather quick reasons here. We're not going to take time to explore each one of these, but there's a lot here. Here they are. Number one, to heal and unite all that has been fractured and separated by the fall. To heal and unite all that has been fractured and separated by the fall. To put it in a different way, the paradise lost in Adam will be restored in Christ. What's interesting about the language of this passage is this. You could say it this way. The paradise lost in Adam is restored in Christ. There's There's a future present idea here. There are some future realities and some present realities. Verse 10 of our passage this morning in Ephesians, um, really the entire thought of the, of the epistle turns on this verse. Um, and as I was kind of studying it and looking at it, one of the things that's helpful to do in Bible study, and I would encourage it, is um, people who have done different translations, there are whole translation teams that have come up with the Bible you're holding right now. And at the start of your, of your Bible, there's probably a philosophy of translation that they, will, that they will be forthcoming with you about. Hey, when we saw this word, we've, in, we've intentionally inserted this to make it easier on the modern-day reader. When they used, um, when they used weights and measurements and, and distances in this language, we've intentionally translated those for the modern reader so that they won't have to go to a separate book and, and discover those things. 
Well, what you do when you, when you come across a portion of Scripture and you see it laid out in four or five translations, sometimes it starts to shed light. It also starts to say different things sometimes, right? And you say, okay, there's truth here. It was written in an original language. Most of us here don't speak Greek and Aramaic and some of these other languages. And so, so we're, we're leaning on, on going in and digging out, saying, what does God have in mind here for us? What's, what's happening? I want to read for you Ephesians 9 through 10. Um, we've already read it in our passage, and um, while I believe it's a, a, um, a massive part of this letter that Paul was writing, I think there's uh, room for confusion on it. Uh, let me read it from the New American Standard uh, translation. Some of you can follow along word for word if you have that. Verse 9 says, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, <clears throat> with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. What? That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. I thought, well, let me move on to NIV. Maybe that will help. Here's NIV. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. There are parts my brain latches onto and says, I get that. There are parts that says, huh? Now, translating Paul has to be just a challenging thing. No question about it. I've apostles. Peter said, look, we don't even understand Paul half the time. Not really. But he said there are, there are things he says sometimes that are really, really hard to understand. Let me read from the New Living Translation, which one year I took the New Living Translation and read it through in my, in my yearly reading through that, that year. I just read it. And what I found was this freshness. Having grown up around the Bible, uh, my brain could predict where the passage was going. And... Um, and it really allowed for me to get a little bit, little bit lazy with it. I've kind of heard this before in language. Now, the New Living Translation, I have certain issues with it and whatnot. I have issues with all translations, but I haven't come up with a better one yet, so I lean on these. But the New Living Translation was this fresh perspective. There were words used in this that just opened up my mind to say, wow, I've heard that, I've memorized that, I've seen that on a flannel graph board, but I've never really heard that verse this way before. Let me read for you these two verses in New Living Translation. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Now, for me, that just read better. And I thought, boy, I've done some background study this week and in weeks past, but that just read nice and clean, and I got that. There is a plan here fullness of times and administrations. I go, what? You know, what are you talking about? But there is a plan that God has here. Here are some of the past, present, and future realities that are trying to be tied up in this. At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That ought to sound familiar. That's a Bible verse. That's a past thing. Here's a present thing. God is redeeming for himself a chosen people, a family. Here's a, here's a future reality that, here's part of it, is culturally people would use language in the Greek that would speak as if it already happened if they were so certain it was going to happen in the future. So that's part of where the confusion in language can come sometimes. We don't do that so much. He will set aright all things when Christ is praised and yielded to. Philippians 2.10 says at one point, every knee will bow to the King of Kings. And there's this opportunity that we have to make the choice willingly to do it in faith and to do it uh, to, to, to enter into God's family. Or there's a time where we will do it uh, essentially unwillingly. And our will will be brought 
into the will of God. Past, present, and future realities. Here's Paul's great thought of, of Ephesians uh, 1.10, I believe. Uh, and this is, from, this is from a commentary. He said it's so good I just had to, to quote it. That the entire universe is to find its cohesion in Christ. All the conflicts, all the diverse strands, all the discrepancies, all the loose ends, all the competing and warring forces, all the estrangements are to be united in Christ. That God has a plan that's bigger than your family and your life. God has a plan that's bigger than just the church. This is talking about the whole scope of the universe here that we're talking about. You know what that allows for? That allows for you, as a Christian, to be an eternal optimist. Now, I know that some of you struggle, well, not struggle, you're wired to be a pessimist. And God bless you. We need you. We really do. But let me just toss this out to you. That you are able to, to, to meet each new day with optimism, eternal optimism, really, because of a good God who is creative, who is strong, and who is working a plan. And that ought to be really encouraging to you. I think about this. As we dismiss here, you're going to probably enter into conversation with someone. As you enter into conversation with a person, you're looking at another person, you say, man, I get to enter into this conversation with, with a freshness, with a perspective that says, maybe, God, maybe God's using me in some way, shape, or form to, to assist this person, to be a servant to this person. Maybe God has something for me out of the mouth of this person I'm about to talk to that I need to hear from. I had lunch with a, with a brother this week who's, in essence, asking a favor from the church. Here's how the conversation ended. I looked him in the eyes and I said, thank you so much for being an encouragement to to me today. God knew just what I needed in in meeting with you. Earlier this week, I went to a a mayor's breakfast. He put on um, an appreciation breakfast for all the faith leaders in the community. And I got to have a dialogue with someone who I met that morning. And the person wrote me at the end of it uh, the next day just saying, listen, thank you just by who you are. I believe God had you talk to me today. And you were just what I needed. And I just look at this and I go, man, God, you're working. Everywhere you're working. And things aren't going the way that I planned. Things aren't turning out quite how I thought they would be. And yet you're working in this. You can be the eternal optimist to say, Lord, all right, things are over here now. What do you have for me? We could waste all of our time, spend all of our time, invest all of our energy. Why, 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 wondering why? And just missing what God has for us in moving forward. Why the cross? Because God is good and he's righting all that, that, that is wrong. I love the way that, uh, I haven't heard a ton of this CD, but I love the way that Jason Gray on his newest CD says this, everything sad is coming untrue. I just love that. I look, I look to a place where God is going to make all things right. When things disgust you right now, you see a video. There's other videos on Samaritan's Purse, by the way. Uh, next month, we are, in, we are planning on having a, um, a specific Sunday to be able to, to reach out to impoverished children around the world and do something collectively at a church, and I'm super fired up about it. When you see the inequality of kids around the world who are, who are living in conditions that are different from us, horribly different, 
When you think about the reality that a majority of the world's population lives on one dollar a day, it makes you think about certain things, doesn't it? And it it makes me realize, it drives me to a point of this. God, you have a plan for me right now. I want to be a part of it. At the same time, I know that you are righting the wrong. And while it doesn't seem equitable to me right now, while it doesn't seem like it's moving fast enough right now, get me outside of myself enough to just look at what you're doing in this plan of redemption. Everything sad is coming untrue. Not today, mind you. The kingdom of God hasn't arrived. But there is a day when Jesus is coming back. And that's where our hope is. And that's what what we want to live toward and point people toward. I love Psalm 19. We we talked about this out under the uh, trees uh, this last fall on kind of a church-wide camp out that we had. Psalm 19.1 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, night, they display knowledge. Creation reveals God's glory, but you know what creation is silent about? Creation is silent about the grace of God. It reveals His vast glory. But let me give you the second reason, at least. There's more. But the second reason from Ephesians 1, that Jesus did what He did. It's because God is full of grace. And one of the largest ways God communicates His lavish grace that He lavishes on us is seen in the cross. The word grace is, um, <clears throat> is a word that, uh, I just want you to think of it this way, God dealing kindly with us, God pleased with us, taking great pleasure in us. That's why we call it the great news. Look at verse 8. What does it say about the grace of God in verse 8? It doesn't say the word grace in there, so you have to read verse 7, I think. What does it say about God's grace in verse 8? Come on, theologians. All right, say it out loud. It's been lavished upon us. Do you believe that? Do you doubt that? Is it, is it beyond a reasonable doubt? Is it, is it beyond the shadow of a doubt? God, in this moment, you've lavished your grace upon me. I'm yours. That's a different place to sing a worship song from than to wonder about that. How do we know God's the gracious God that we hear about sometimes? According to what measure? It's according to the riches of His grace. Here's a powerful thought. Is God infinite in His knowledge? Yes. Is God infinite in His power? Yeah. Is God infinite in His grace? It's infinite. So that as He lavishes on you, He's not running out. We talked last week about wave upon wave is a picture of God's grace. You don't need to worry that you're spending it at too fast of a clip. I love the songs we sing. We sang it this morning. That God, your grace is greater than my sin. Praise God for that. That ought to put a smile on your face. And a lightness in your step. And as you deal with people, you're free to deal with people in a light-free way. You don't need things from them. You're being given it by God Almighty. 
We like to be in, your good, in each other's good standings. But how much more so to be in God's good standings? In Christ, we're able to see the kindness of God. It's manifest. It's shown to us. We're able to see the compassion of God. We're able to see the great lengths with which God went to reveal His deep and abiding love for us on the cross. And that's the plan of God. The application of this is, is I think, fairly obvious. When you and I come to a place that we know, that we know, that we know that God is on our side after all. But I don't understand it. But I was rebellious. But you come back to a place and you say, God's on my side after all. It frees you up to live the way that you and I were designed to live. Generous, free, joyful, at peace. The story we heard about John Newton is evidence that this amazing grace lavished on a wretched sinner changes a person for the rest of their life. For the rest of your life, you are altered forever when you taste that kind of grace. And yet at the end of his life, John Newton still could sing with passion, I believe. Man, I was a wretched sinner. I was lost. Oh, but for the grace of God. I'd be trapped in my sin. Guilty of the disgusting things that I not only gave approval to, but participated in. And then the truth that grace abounds. First reason is that God's righting all wrong. Secondly is that God is lavishing His grace on creation. A third, a third reason is that it's just part of God's plan. There are times that you need to just say, God, this is just part of your plan. I don't understand it. If you could, if you could in your notes this morning, look at Ephesians 1, 7 to 12. It's printed there for you. If you just started to go through and circle all the words that have to do with the, the plan of God, you'd come across these. Making known, mystery of His will, purpose, plan, predestined, works all things, will. Do you get it? God has a will. He has a plan. And there are times we just have to come to a place where we say, God, it's just part of your plan. People want to know all the time, what is God's will? You've asked that question. God, what is your will? Third day has a great song, Revelation. Give me a revelation, Lord. Should I stay? Should I go? What do you have for me? Here's my hunch. My hunch is, and, and I've tasted of this too, so I'm growing in this. But my hunch is that a lot of Christians spend so much time trying to figure out the will of God instead of just living out the will of God that's been revealed to them. Should I stay? Should I go? Is it this person? Is that person? And they're working so hard doing these things instead of saying, I'm just going to work where I am right now. Pastors are notorious in this land, maybe and in others, I don't know. But they are notorious for investing for a season and then moving on. You know what it was? And I grew up at a church. I've been around church my whole life. And we could feel it. There were certain announcements that happened in church where like, you could feel like, oh boy, something big's going on today. And someone would get up and they have received the call of God elsewhere. Now as a pastor who's gone from one church to another church and now to this church, oh, my third church, I've been through that two different times. So I'm not saying, I'm not condemning people who do that. But here's what I wonder sometimes. 
I wonder if we would just, and this applies to a person who's not in full-time vocational ministry, I wonder if we would just be faithful to the ministry we're doing right here and now. And say, God, if you want to move me on, you're God. (laughs) I mean, you'll move me on, right? I am going to faithfully minister to what's going on right now. I periodically challenge you as a congregation to evaluate your calling. Paul, by the will of God to the saints. What's the will of God for your life? I think you ought, I think it's wise to yearly get away, you, your Bible, no other agenda. Say, Lord, do you still want me here? Do you still want me being a teacher? Do you still want me being a, a police officer? Do you still want me working in this office? If you come back with a yes, if you come back with no other reason, then, 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 then go back renewed in your calling. Live out your vocation right there. Say, God, then you must have people in this office that need to get saved. I better get to work. I better figure out why it is I'm here. And just get in sync with your plan. Not always, but sometimes pastors use a place for a stepping stool, for something bigger and better and greener. And we're all susceptible to that. Don't pin this just on pastors. God's worked me exactly opposite, from a really large church to a medium-sized church to a smaller church. I think by the time I'm 60, it's going to be like a small group, me and two people, and God's just like... (laughs) I mean, I think I'll know. I think I'll know when I'm done, you know? It's just the pattern that's going on. But here's what I'll commit to you. I'll say this, that church family, I, I, I feel called here. I feel called to, to pour in here. And if God's going to move you away from here, I want it to be God at work. And you know what? I will not stand in your way. I will say, man, let me help usher you on to this other ministry. You've been an amazing part of our church family here, but I see it too. Let me help usher you away from here to another place. And if God would ever do that in my life, be it six months or 16 years from today, would you extend the same grace to me? And can we just say, God, I, I want your will. I don't want to stand in the way of that. But instead of hunting around and reading books and figuring things out, would you just get to work at the mission field God has for you right now? People are lost and dying around you while you're reading books about God's will. It's right here. He's revealed it to you. Not all of it. And therein lies the rub, huh? That's where we struggle. God, you've revealed a part of your will. You're on a rescue mission. I get that. I'm part of that. I get that. I've got a standing before a holy God that puts me at ease. I am going to work hard out of this place of salvation, not for salvation. These are basic, revealed plans of God. In places that He hasn't revealed to you, just let God be God and move on. John MacArthur said it this way, apart from the wisdom and insight mentioned here in Ephesians 1, that God provides His children a hopeless conclusion to the discussion of God's will is inescapable. But history belongs to God, not to the puny plans of man or the perverse power of Satan. History is written and directed directed by its creator who will see it through to the fulfillment of his own ultimate purpose, the summing up of all things in Christ. When life has you by the throat, when you're down on your luck, when you're down on your health, when you're down on your hope, know, church, that God is present that God sees, and that God's sovereign. God's working a plan.
we'll look more at how the Spirit of God, read the rest of Ephesians 1 today, how the Spirit of God is evidence. It's like a down payment of our future inheritance with God. You know what Romans 8 says about the Spirit of God? It says that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. God, I don't know your will for me. Many times the Spirit of God has just said, just just keep being faithful to where you're at. Just keep moving in the direction I have you. But, but God, what about this? What about? Don't worry about those things. There are certain times, parents, you tell your kids, don't worry about that. I'm the parent. I've got it handled. You just put your little head to bed now and you don't need to worry about any of those things. Trust me, you'd make a mess of it. You're six. I mean, you know, you just say those things sometimes. <laughs> right? And how is it with us with God? But God, I need to know. I want to know. It's a control thing. It's rebellion, really. Put yourself under God. Submit to God. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This is Romans 8, 8, 26. And And He who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. God has a plan. Verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called what? According to His purpose. I mean, do you get this time and again all over Scripture? Get in sync with God. Don't make a plan and ask God to bless it. Say, God, I want to find out your plan. Be blessed by being a part of it. That's a challenge. But that's where we're at. That's what we're to be about. Oh, man, so much more. We'll, we'll move quick. Fourthly is this, to place you into his forever family. Look at the language that's used in Ephesians 1. The word adoption is used. By the way, little plug, uh, the adoption community group starts tonight. Um, you can still join. We bought a few extra books for those of you. Um, get the word out. They could even join as late as a week from tonight. But in, in the adoption uh, world, if you will, there's a term that people throw around. It says this. They're, 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 they're looking at putting kids into forever families. Don't you love that? That's just so cool. I take that for granted. I was born into a forever family. My family is my biological family, and they'll they'll be my family. They happen to know Christ, so they really will be my forever family. But those of you who've been just given that don't know what it's like not to have it. Those of you who in this room maybe haven't had a forever family uh, and, and understood what it was like to be placed into a forever family. Man, that means something to you. Those who have much to be forgiven love much. When we understand our inheritance apart from Christ, you know what we inherit apart from Christ? Not just nothing. It's worse than nothing. It's negative. We move into negative, right? The punishment, the wrath that's rightly due our sin. But in Christ, we have an inheritance. Why? Because we're adopted. Band, I want to invite you to come up. These are in your notes, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time. But we inherit. Gosh, there's so much about the inheritance. We'll get more of that in a few weeks. But look at this. Every promise God ever made. 2 Peter 1.3 His divine power has granted, us, granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. By which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. Go and learn what God promises to every believer. And let it be your food. Let it be your sustenance. Not only every promise, but every spiritual blessing. And finally, wisdom, understanding, and insight. I would say into the will of God, which is, 
which is to say, into understanding what life and the universe are all about. Insight and understanding into truth. I'm going to read a story, and then we're going to sing a song, and then we'll celebrate communion. There was a king who loved a humble maiden. The king was like no other king. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had the strength to crush all opponents. And yet this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden. How could he declare his love for her? In an odd sort of way, his kingliness tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body in royal robes, she would surely not resist him. No one dared resist him. But would she love him? She would say she loved him, of course, but would she truly? Or would she live with him in fear, nursing a private grief for the life that she had left behind? Would she be happy at his side? How could he know? If he rode to her, uh, to her forest cottage in a royal carriage with an armed escort waving bright banners, that, that too would overwhelm her. He did not want her a cringing subject. He wanted a lover, an equal. He wanted her to forget that he was a king and she was a humble maiden and to let shared love cross the gulf between them. There were some amazing words that came along that began to reveal God's grace to us. And it's when the prophets uttered by divine revelation a new part of the plan. And behold, a virgin will be with child. Prophesying the birth of Jesus Christ. And as God incarnate, we get to see in the person of Jesus Christ come humbly to us, come in a way that we can relate to, a love shown to us beyond the shadow of a doubt. I want you to listen to this song that we sing in light of the massive plans of God that are at work in our lives. Let's sing it. service um, this morning. Don't be in a rush. It's raining outside. Just stay in here. Um, We're going to play a song here in just a minute. And during that song, I would just invite you, um, if you're a part of the family of God, and again, no one's uh, keeping track of this. This is between you and the Lord. But just to go to one of the two tables and uh, and just as a reminder to take this, um, this little cracker with no yeast in it representing the sinless body of Christ and remembering and proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. I love that communion has a forward-looking aspect to it, to make all things right. And that's what we're going to remember, and then to take the cup and to remember the blood that was given as a part of God's plan, as a part of God's rescue. Some of you this morning, I recognize, may not be a Christian. And uh, let me just throw (coughs) throw this out to you in the bottom of your insert this morning, I have to the disciple of Jesus and to the undecided. Let me just toss out to you this image, and um, guys, if you can bring this up. In, in San Jose this week, 33 souls were saved from certain death. 
Some of you watched in utter amazement with just, just such a feeling of joy as the first body comes up that's still alive. These guys have been down there for over two months. And there's an image of this little boy that you see and he's there and as he sees the tube come up, he just starts crying. And there's a relief. There's this one point where he just throws his head back like, like you can imagine this burden that's been on him. Each one of these guys down there, 33 people face certain death. Every one of them, my wife made this neat observation, every one of them needed help from above. They couldn't see the help from above. They had to have faith. And every one of them trusted the path of rescue. Climb into a 20-inch tube or whatever it is. They were on a regiment to keep thin enough. You think you're going to diet? Absolutely. But I don't really like cramped spaces. I'm afraid of the dark. I like things a certain way. You know what? They trusted the path of rescue. There's room at the cross. The cross doesn't make sense to you. Apart from the Spirit of God, it doesn't make sense to me. But that's the path of God's rescue. Come and humble yourself. Come and bend your knee. I'm going to be right up front. We have, we have spirit-filled men and women in this room that will come and minister to you. While we take communion, if you want to accept Christ for the first time today, you come and you just bend your knee. You say, God, I, I'm a sinner. I'm a John Newton. I need your grace. I need your path of rescue. I trust in it today. Let's pray. God, thank you for communion. Lord, thank you for these tangible, simple things that anyone in the world, no matter their economic level, can celebrate. What an ingenious, divine way to remember you. You don't require stained glass and giant steeples and expensive robes or artifacts. God, there's room at the cross for every sinner. Lord, would you awaken and stir in the hearts and lives of people in this room the urgency of making sure that we're in sync with Jesus Christ, that we could say as we sung in Amazing Grace that you're mine forevermore and that we're in sync with your plan. Forgive us, God, for running from your plan. Forgive us for creating our own and inviting you into it. We humble ourselves here this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.